Let's go to God's word today. Well, I invite you to open a Bible or look on screen. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 22 to hear God's word. But before we read scripture, I want to give a, a brief introduction, kind of a, an image to help us begin to understand what Paul is going to get at in this scripture. Now, in a, in a lot of old movies and TV shows and books, there's this idea of a, a will being read after someone dies. And the scene often takes place in this dark wood-paneled room, and it smells of, of a cigar smoke and leather. And the, the lawyer is often sitting on one side of this big wooden desk, and he, he opens his briefcase and pulls out the document. And the family is sitting on the other side in chairs, kind of nervously. Maybe one of them is pacing in the background, wondering what this will will contain. And they, they wonder, is this going to have words of, of blessing for them or, or words of, of judgment? Is there going to be enough money for everyone? How is it going to be divided? Will there be strings attached? And then the lawyer clears his throat <clears throat> and says, this is the last will and testament of so-and-so. And you can hear the capital letters as he says it. Uh, the lawyer continues reading, and you, you hear out the, the, the story of how the assets are going to be laid out, what they are and how they're going to be divided, who gets what, and what sentimental gifts go to each person. The tears are shed, and, and hurts are forgiven, and, and all is well in the world, and there's even a big donation for the local hospital. That's how it happens on TV, but, but sometimes the will is this inciting moment. It's not a happy moment, but a moment that, that reveals a conflict in this family, something that drives the rest of the story. There's a problem that's going to happen. The will speaks of the, the character, the desires of the person who died, and it sets the course for the descendants. Of course, in, in real life, we know it's a little bit different than that. Uh, most of us probably won't ever inherit anything at all, and we certainly don't expect to have anything left at the end of our lives, what with uh, old age and medical bills and everything. That's for rich billionaires on TV and in books. But a will can serve as this final reminder of the life course of the descendants. It can serve a reminder of what this person was like, who they were, what they cared for, who they loved, what they loved in life. And Paul is going to use this example of a will as a, a way of helping us understand God's promise and God's law and how they fit together. Now last week we saw how God's promise to Abraham is this unconditional foundational promise for all believers. God said, all nations will be blessed through you. And then God gave this promise to Abraham without strings attached, unconditionally, a covenant. Now, Abraham was a Gentile, just like these Gentile Christians, these Galatians that Paul is writing to, and he gives them this promise of faith, the promise that all who believe are children of Abraham. So Paul's going to run with that idea today, and uh, let's see what God's Spirit reveals to us now in the Scripture. So we'll read Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. It says this, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example for you from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that is a will or testament, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. 
What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. For God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Uh, A mediator, however, implies that more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now Paul has two ideas in this text, two big ideas, law and promise. And he he starts out with this idea of a a will or testament, a human covenant or contract, a promise. And it's a legal metaphor, but one that a lot of his listeners probably would have been familiar with, otherwise he wouldn't have used it. He, He says that no one can set aside this covenant, this will, or add to it. Now, obviously, we know that people do sometimes revise their will as they get older, probably even back in Paul's day. But that doesn't make this, that all that does is make this new will the last will and testament. Emphasis on last. Because the key ingredient to any will is death. See, once death comes, the document cannot be changed. You can't make a new will after you die. And that is the case with the covenants of God, says Paul. And then Paul has this strange idea, it's a little bit confusing to us, about seeds and seed Paul is making this point that God's promise to Abraham was to him and to his seed. And the word is singular, both in Greek here and in Hebrew back in the Old Testament, not plural. Because for Paul, this singular promise of the seed means one thing, Jesus. The promise of Abraham points to Jesus. And later on, Paul will look at the plural side and and say, well, yes, God's promises apply to Abraham and to his descendants as a group, too, because we know that seed can be a collective noun. English is a little complicated like that. Maybe you're a teacher and you know that we have these things called collective nouns. They're singular, but they mean plural. Things like seed. Uh, How much seed do you plant per acre? Well, that's, that's plural. Uh, you, we don't say how many seeds do you plant per acre because it's much too hard to count them, right, Mark? <laughs> Good. Uh, sheep is another example. Sheep is both singular and plural. Uh, how many sheep do you have? Well, one sheep, two sheep, three sheep. We don't say sheeps. Uh, it takes kids a little while to get that sometimes. English is hard. But the, the, the second point that Paul is making about this covenant promise to Abraham is that it comes first before the law. And Paul is careful to point out that this promise beat out the law by 430 years, a number so precise that he is just hammering his point in. Uh, The law comes later, but it doesn't replace the promise that God gave to Abraham. Uh, No good Jew would think that. They they hold fast to God's promise to Abraham. We are Abraham's children, not Moses' children. And the promise comes first before the law, but the law doesn't do away with the promise, says Paul. So he goes back to that legal metaphor again, the inheritance, the will. 
The, the inheritance comes because of the promises in the will, not because of anything the heirs did. It's all in the giver's hands. It's, it, the one who did everything in this case is the giver. Uh, they died. The most necessary thing for a will. I mean, you can't execute a will before that person dies. Imagine the people hearing this letter for the first time. Now, for some of them, the promise of God to Abraham sounds like nothing but good news. What's the problem with that? Uh, But some of them might have wondered quietly or maybe shouted it out, Paul, if that's true, then why have the law at all? What, what, What is the point of the law? Well, Paul has an answer to that because he expects the question. And so he addresses it directly here in verse 19. He says, why then was the law given at all? And what Paul means when he says the law, of course, is the works of the law is that whole package of the Jewish rules and laws and regulations and ways of living. And they functioned as fences, fences to keep other people out and fences to keep themselves from sin. See, the the law was a boundary marker uh, of who was in the Jewish people. And it was also a way of, of living in holiness according to God's ways. And some theologians have tried to draw a difference between the law as a way of getting in to God's covenant or the law as a way of staying in God's covenant. And honestly, it's a, it's a little bit of both. It's easy to see how both could have gone wrong. If the law is just about keeping those people out, then what you end up with is pride and prejudice and nationalism. On the other hand, if the law is only about keeping the rules and regulations and being, adding a few more, just be extra sure that you don't fall into sin, well, then, then you end up in legalism and, and nitpicking and, and death. And these problems show up today just as much as they did in the early church and in, among the Jews. We rather contribute something toward our salvation. We'd rather have something to do with our relationship with God. Maybe what we bring is our passion for God. Or maybe we bring our our faithful prayer. Or maybe we bring a, a lifetime of faithful service. We'd rather have these rules work out in our favor, uh, keeping those bad people out. Or we'd rather be known as the pure ones, the good ones, the ones who keep all the rules. Well, says Martin Luther, then... We mingle law and promise. We mingle law and promise, as he accused the church of doing back in the 1500s. And he begged his people, and here I'm loosely paraphrasing a bit, but he said to them, don't mix up promise and law. Don't mix them up. Promise has to do with heaven and the spirit, and law has to do with earth and sin and trouble. Don't mingle them. Keep them separate. Otherwise, neither the law nor the promise have any point. Well, Paul here thinks that the law is important, not pointless. And it is important because it's connected to the promise. But it is very different from it. The law serves to show us our sin. And sometimes Paul even says uh, earlier in this chapter that the law uh, shows us that we are cursed. We fall under the curse of the law. And what he means is that the law shows us that we are already sinners, that that we are stuck in the sinfulness of the world. And Paul thinks that there's another problem with the law, too, that it came through a human mediator, Moses, and maybe angels, too, according to Jewish tradition. And it wasn't this direct covenant between God and humans, but had a mediator between them. Uh, The Israelites didn't want to go into God's presence directly on Mount Sinai, so they sent Moses up there on their behalf to receive the law. That's not how God gave his promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is direct. It's a direct covenant between God and Abraham. It's an unconditional covenant too. 
You see, the the third time that God gave this promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, he asks Abraham to set up a sacrifice. Now, this is a weird story, and you may not have heard it many times, but he tells Abraham to take a heifer cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and to kill them and split them in half and lay them on either side of a path. And uh, it's this weird and bloody story. And what God is asking Abraham to do is this traditional Middle Eastern way of sealing the deal, of, of, of sealing a, a, an important covenant between two parties, like between two nations or kings. And the two parties walk between the slaughtered animals. They walk together on the path as if to say, if either one of us breaks this covenant, may our bodies be split in two just like these animals are. And the strange and amazing part of the story is that God shows up, not just in a vision, but in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. God, and only God, passes between the animals. God makes this unconditional, unbreakable, one-sided covenant promise with Abraham. I will bless you and your seed, and, and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. And if this covenant is broken by you, Abraham, I, the God of heaven and earth, will be slaughtered and split like these animals and will take the punishment on my body. That is God's promise to Abraham. And it points right to Jesus. Because that's why this promise points to Jesus. It is Jesus who took the consequence of breaking the covenant on his body, who was slain on the cross, who was sacrificed for us so that God's covenant might be made whole. And the old Reformation theologians, uh, Luther and Calvin and others, they came up with this thing that they called the, the three uses of the law. And what Paul is talking about here is the first use of the law, what's called the pedagogical use of the law, the, the teaching use of the law. The law teaches us that we're sinners. The law points to the need for a savior. It reveals the sin that is already there. It pulls back the shiny surface of human hearts and reveals the, the corruption that's inside And in verse 22, Paul uses this image of being locked up, imprisoned by sin. The law is especially useful for those who have not believed the gospel because it shows that we're sinners in need of God's grace, that we need Jesus. Then the the second use of the law that the reformers came up with was this thing they called the civil use of the law. The, The law serves to guide government in good ways. Now, obviously, our culture and time is really different from the Israelites a thousand years before Jesus, so things look a little different today, but the moral and civil parts of the law point out God's heart. They show us who God is and what God cares for, how God is holy and pure, and God wants people to live that way. God cares for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the oppressed, and he wants society to care for them too. The law reveals God's heart for the world. And though the specifics of how to apply it might change, God's heart does not. And then there's the third use of the law, what John Calvin calls the spiritual use of the law. What he means by that is spirit-filled use of the law. Because the law is no longer a covenant over us because it has met his purpose. It is pointed to Christ and Christ has come. And the law helps us understand what God has done in Christ and it shows us how God desires us to live. The law doesn't give us life. Jesus Christ has done that by God's grace through the Spirit. And the promise comes through faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe, says Paul. 
And for Paul, that promise includes not just the blessing to Abraham, but also the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised his followers. And we'll, we'll, we'll see later on in Galatians how the Holy Spirit is really the heart of it for Paul, how it's the culmination of the promise. In fact, he never once comes back to the law once he gets to the Spirit. He, he says that the Spirit is what makes our holy living possible, and that is the fulfillment of the promise. Now, this idea of a promise, of an inheritance, shows up in a lot of books. And uh, in John Grisham's novel, The Testament, you might have seen the movie or read the book, there's this rich old billionaire, uh, Troy Phelan, I think his name is, who is dying. And he gathers his children together to sign his will. They're each going to get an equal share of the money. And they're all in debt up to their ears and they need the money to fulfill their ambitions in life. And they have no love for their dying old man. They just want the money. And in the presence of his lawyer, he signs the will. And then they all leave the building. And uh, a few hours later, uh, he, he throws himself out of his wheelchair, off the balcony, and down to his death. And just a few minutes before he did that, he handed his lawyer a new will, a last will and testament. And this will says that each kid is going to get just enough money to erase their debts up to his point of his death. And then the rest will go to this seventh child who was not there. Billions and billions of dollars to an illegitimate daughter who's a missionary off in the jungles of Brazil and the Amazon. This woman who's never met uh, her father until she was an adult. She's gone to seminary and become this missionary and caring for people's uh, spiritual and physical needs out there. And so the, the lawyer sends this young associate into the jungle to find her. But she refuses to take the money. She doesn't want to sign the documents and and she wants to live this life that's untainted by greed and evil and all the responsibility that comes with the money. And of course, even in the jungle, there is sin and death. And uh, I think she dies from malaria sometime near the end of the book. And I'm not sure what happens with the money. If she takes it or if she gives it away, I don't want to spoil the ending for you. But she sees the gift. She sees the grace and she chooses to live differently. And that's what Paul's getting at here in Galatians. He's trying to talk about this this idea of wills and law and promise and inheritance, but the promise comes first by God's grace to Abraham and to Christ and to us, his descendants. It is this covenant that is sealed and fulfilled in Christ's death. It's a covenant that's affirmed in Jesus' resurrection and it is transformed by the gift of the Spirit to all who believe. And that is the promise. So dear friends of Jesus Christ, may we live in the Spirit, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we we grasp onto the promise of God's grace. We give you thanks for this promise that goes before, long before our sin and death a promise that comes to us in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and and a promise that comes to us in the Spirit, guiding us in holy living each day. We trust that you are, through your word, working about good in our hearts, that you are transforming us by your Spirit away from sin and toward your gift and promise. We, We ask your forgiveness when we have fallen away from that, and then you call us back by your Spirit to live holy lives. Help us to grasp your promise and to to, to see how promise and law are different and to hold on to your promise as the foundational source of our life. May we live holy lives. May we follow your spirit each day. 
Give us strength through Jesus to do that and call us by your spirit to, to serve and to love in your world. We pray this in Jesus Christ and by his holy name. Amen.